0: Being a talk radio show, my show is called The Concrete Conservative on Blink Radio 94.5. We talk from 5 to 7 about anything politics. We like to, uh, you know, pretty much ravage the Democratic Party here on The Concrete Conservative. We invite all Democrats to, you know, to speak with us. We have a tough time getting guests here, but, you know, we do the best we can. We are conservative folks here, and... uh as you know, Ed Vidal has got me on solo. He's having a tough time coming out to keep a scan at this hour. And especially as a volunteer, it's kind of hard to pull someone from off the key to come out here. But quite frankly, uh, the majority of people who supported me here and uh, the Concrete Conservative have been from off the key. And I would like to thank Ed for everything he's done. For two years, he was with me coming out here diligently, beating Miami traffic, you know. It's not easy. I fully understand, so I can't thank him enough. And he's always gotten these fantastic guests to call, and he was really diligent as an attorney, which is not easy for me to say, a diligent attorney, you know what I mean? I have this thing with attorneys. You have to hire them, and you got to love them, and you got to keep them, and it's just like you can't live with them, and you can't live without them kind of thing. In this case, I can't live without Ed He left me alone. What can I tell you? But, nevertheless, we're going to do our solid best. Excuse the pun, solid best here on the concrete conservative, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, Bill Hurl, executive director of National Federation of Independent Businesses, and he will should be calling here at around five thirty. But going back to Rush, you know, he smokes cigarettes and cigars. I smoke cigars. Voice wondered if I'm going to have to bear the brunt of. That notice one day, um like him, we were both heavy set. I'm sure that uh the cigarette I never smoked I've never had not even one cigarette, never tried it never never been interested in it, but yeah, cigars I have been smoking since my thirties I'm now fifty five so I can say i've been uh i don't know religiously smoking at least one cigar a day. there are exceptions where I don't smoke a cigar at all. And there's exceptions where I, you know, I hang out with friends and I might do the second cigar sometime later in the afternoon. My Usually my cigar is after breakfast. So it's kind of like, I don't know, it's a treat. For me, it's like a pacifier. And I'm sure Rush can attest to this too. If we didn't smoke cigars, we'd probably be weighing five, 600 pounds. You know, it's people with eating disorders who like to eat all the time. Without the cigar, you just eat that much more. And while most people can honestly say that, uh, you know, they they have different reasons for smoking cigars. Um, I, of course, uh, you know, picked up the habit, basically, watched my dad smoke cigars every day. He smoked one probably after every meal, so he was probably doing three a day. And my father never really suffered from pulmonary problems, but he had all the other problems. Diabetes, which I have. Uh, Parkinson's, which I don't have yet. But, uh, you know, he didn't have pulmonary disease, but, um, you know, he, when he passed away, he definitely, uh, I could see personally in the eight days in hospice that he struggled to breathe. So that's a sign of what's to come. What can I tell you? So be it. And maybe I'm spared. Maybe I'm not. I really am a believer in the DNA pool. And you get something, something that's delivered to you from... Divine intervention, destiny—however you want to call it—when your parents choose to reproduce, you you get, uh, pers- you know, a ratio of their genes, their character, and their personalities. Some people might think it's fifty-fifty. Some people might say you're like you're all your dad or you're all your mom. Uh, I have three brothers, so each each one of them have characters, uh, traits of both my mom and my dad. And I guess the same applies to me. So. I definitely, uh, you know, waiting for the terrible news or hopefully no news at all. Um, I am already have diabetes knocking on my door, and that's solely from my parents, um, my father's side of the family. So it is what it is. So uh, Rush, um, yeah, yeah, you're kind of the motivation for me getting on this radio dial and talking basically. My reasons for being conservative are very different, but nevertheless, we do our our humble best here to preserve our liberties and uh, recognize that we have political Stockholm Syndrome here in the Republican Party. So we have a harsh, harsh reality is that we have a tough sell. Selling conservatism is just hard, period. There's a certain amount of... of virtue to having small government. There's a certain amount of duplicity because our party is sometimes involved in the the largest litigation around. Um, our party did increase and double the size of the federal government solely on the excuse that we were attacked on September 11th and recreated the Department of Homeland Security. That doubled the size of the federal government. It's the largest department in all of the federal government. Look into it yourself. It is a harsh reality. George Bush is presidency, signed it into law, and we had majorities in the House and Senate when it was proposed. A completely overzealous, incredibly ambitious, reactionary law and bill, and it grew so fast, it was passed so fast, because these kind of crises uh, makes us do stupid things. I don't think it was necessary. I think the You know, the narrative where the FBI and immigration and the DOJ and all the other law enforcement agencies weren't in cahoots with each other. Uh, They didn't share information with each other. They had different databases and sometimes they wouldn't give each other the scoop. Is, uh, in my opinion, very exaggerated and isn't the reason to join all these forces together, create a massive bureaucracy, which for me is a police state. It's just that simple. It's nothing more and nothing less. It's an excuse to have a police state all under the guise of terrorism and security. I remember the Edward Snowden movie where I can't remember the character, but he was walking with his mentor, the person who got him into uh, the CIA, and said, look, Americans just want a sense of security. All else is not really important. It's just basically give Americans a sense of security where whether it's real or not, And that's suffice to say that uh, you'll have your way with them. As long as Americans feel like they're being secure, they'll let you blow up the government into huge, enormous sizes right into deficit spending. I believe that the perfect example, unrelated to expanding government, but creating a life insurance company for the United States was Social Security. They took, uh, FDR took advantage of the economic depression of our time and guaranteed people retirement without any real uh, analysis of who who gets to retire on this. Well, he just said, we all do. And quite frankly, many people thought that, that the whole idea was bumpkiss, that it would lead us into bankruptcy, that all these entitlement programs would get piled on. And sure enough, we piled them on. Now we've got welfare, green stamps, unemployment compensation. And guess what? You're paying for it. Because even in Social Security, they're taking it from you to give it back to you later. And it's the next generation who pays what you're going to be receiving when you retire. So who's going to tell me that's not a Ponzi scheme? Come on, man. It's pretty obvious. Not to mention what they promise you to retire. You can't retire with it. Barely pays the cable bill, the money you get. What's the average person actually getting in Social Security. Twelve hundred bucks, eighteen hundred bucks, twenty five hundred bucks, three thousand bucks. You tell me, the one who's getting three thousand bucks, I'm sure has a uh, uh, expensive lifestyle. Can't retire on the three thousand bucks, but she's got a handsome house, big tax bill, probably still a mortgage payment. Most people don't pay off their mortgages by the time they retire; they're still, you know, thirty year mortgages, and they still have maybe five or ten years still left. Upon retirement, it's not enough to pay off the mortgage, so you still have to save. uh, I'm sure I can find on YouTube that they are saying, this is not, don't expect, don't believe this is not a life insurance policy. This is not a retirement guarantee. This is supplemental, supplemental income. Well, if it's supplemental, it's up to supplement this, okay? Because... I know that uh, most people, uh, although they're looking forward to their Social Security, and quite frankly, uh, they got nothing else but Social Security, it's still a banduzel. What can I say? Now, as far as uh, being a small business owner, you know, since it's the largest business component of our economy and the largest component that employs the most amount of people, there's a real risk-reward ratio of surviving in a small business. Owning a small business and operating a small business, it doesn't guarantee you to anything other than uh, failure at your own expense. You can't blame anybody else. You can't blame your employees. You can't blame anybody. They're not going to come back and help you out. Uh, they're going to disappear in the middle of the night. I'm talking about your employees, and your customers. So surviving on Social Security is kind of a harsh reality if you're in small business. So it's one of those situations where what are you to do? Well, you need to save your pennies. But then again, your business has to be profitable for you to save your pennies. And it's one of those situations where I don't know what to tell you other than the fact that... uh, Litigation, my friends, you gotta have the government protect small businesses from frivolous lawsuits. Uh, look at the perfect example of the physicians. You know they spend so much money on insuring themselves from possible lawsuits for malpractice, that it keeps many from even practicing, or if they do successfully have a practice, they're one lawsuit away from uh, bankruptcy. Now that that scenario became something that Obama administration used to pass Obamacare. The frivolous lawsuits are the reason for the high cost of health care. No one ever wanted to talk about the very fact that health care didn't come up with a price list. I mean, think about it. You don't go into a hospital and see a list for MRIs, for stitches, for, for crutches, for, you know, a list for everything. Quite frankly, it should be like a menu in a restaurant. They hand you the menu and you see all the prices right there. And the big-ticket items should be on a board somewhere. And then you're free to shop from one hospital to another. For the longest time, they limited the amount of hospitals that could be built in a community. You know? And the bigger cities had more hospitals, but the truth is they were limiting how many hospitals could be anywhere. Well, Florida seems to have gotten rid of that law to allow hospitals to pop up everywhere. Let's see if they actually do pop up anywhere. Because these operations are so big and enormous, uh, it's probably organically uh, designed so that there aren't too many hospitals because it's just so cost-preventative to have a lot of hospitals. But you can have, like, fast clinics pop up everywhere for the lesser stuff, like, you know, flu infections, um, broken legs, you know, simple X-rays. Maybe even uh, include the MRI. The MRI is a very expensive gadget. I mean, it's a huge machine. And the hospitals are the only ones that seem to have it because it's so expensive. But, you know, the today's technologies are today's technologies. I'm sure somewhere, somehow, you can organically get big hospitals to expand themselves. I call it the Countrywide Expansion Act in my book, The Fiscals. And there I say, if I give a big hospital the, the right or the obligation, I should say, not the right, but the obligation that every 10 years they expand their facility by 10%, either on their property, on the property's footprint, or if they can't because they're expanded out, then they have to do the same 10% into countryside. In other words, in the suburbs, lower income areas, there'll be designated areas where they have to expand these hospital facilities by 10%, they have to do that every 10 years. In exchange for doing that, they get soft-cost subsidies to renovate, modernize their present facilities, and non medical related equipment like the carpet, the TV, the lighting, the furniture in the lobbies or in the rooms, stuff that you can quantify, you can invoice out, and you get a subsidy to fund that by taxes, reduction in taxes. Especially the reduction in the taxes in the first years of the new facility you're building out. So in other words, so a hospital that's got 100,000 square feet, 10,000 square foot clinic has to be built somewhere, 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 somewhere in the suburbs, plain and simple. So uh, I think that would lower the price simply because healthcare dramatically, the price would dramatically go down with competition plus accessibility. Um, Shorter ambulance runs from emergency scenes to the nearest hospital, including these fast-track clinics. More accessible to people who live out in the boonies. They get access to quality care, shorter distance away. You can actually shop against, you can actually have the hospital competing against itself to some degree when they see that their fast-track clinic and their solar is doing better than the hospital proper, they'll learn from that. And the law will allow them that after 30 years, those fast-track, those three fast-track clinics that were built in the 30 years, one every 10 years, can be sold to a chain of fast-track clinics. Therefore, profit center there good old magic of capitalism, all motivated or incentivized by tax subsidies. Anytime you can give government a reason to give away their money that they think they've earned, government, like if they act as if they've earned this money because they just raised the taxes, they get it, and they act like they earned it, give it back to the private sector as a partner, I think that's where my political philosophy lies. It might be called libertarian. It's definitely conservative. And it's not socialist in any way because I'm taking money from the government, not giving money to the government. So as much as uh, I like my idea, no one can accuse it to be a coercive idea because it's not not forcing you. Well, that's not true. I stand corrected because I am, this law does force the hospital to expand itself every 10 years. So that's coercive in nature, but it's incentivized by these soft-cost sus- subsidies. Now, these soft-cost c- subsidies cannot be for IVs, medicines, medical technologies, operating tables, syringes, nothing to do with medicine, only for the bricks and mortar building and expanding and modernizing the new facility. Or if it's in your plant, in other words, in your the main facility of the hospital, then obviously for the east wing, west wing, whatever that may be, so that would also incentivize a smaller, mid-sized hospital to grow itself within its footprint. But I realize in some places that footprint is limited, just because the original footprint was not expansive. There's a lot of hospitals that have tremendous amount of land all around it; they can expand to, and others don't. So there we go. That's my way of driving down healthcare. Over and over and over, creating real estate development opportunities for hospitals themselves and also going nonprofit. If they go nonprofit, then they get this plan in place. Very important that you go nonprofit. So, in other words, in lieu of showing profit, that money is going to a savings account within the facility for the future expansion of a fast track clinic so check it out you go to the website thefiscals.com and you go to uh countrywide expansion act and you'll see there's a tab there and read all about it. it's not very long it's uh, just one uh reinvention among a bunch of reinventions because the book is Basically titled The Fiscal is The Reinvention of the United States by Affect, Not Effect. And I just come up with ideas to reinvent the United States because I really don't like the word reform. I think I use the word reform, something like 80,000 words, I think I use the, re- the word reform once or twice. And only because I'm telling you I'm not going to use the word anymore. So I had to use the word in the word, in the sentence that says I'm not going to use the word reform anymore. I try to replace that word with reinvention every time. So it's, these things are, are interesting if we not only think outside the box, but think outside the box on the right side of history. In other words, think outside a bigger box on the right side of the box on the right side of history. That'd be a cool mantra for you. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm into mantras. So, you know, think about it. Not only think outside the box, but think outside a bigger box on the right side of history. I think that would do us just fine. Now, what do you think about the impeachment? Uh, A bunch of people really believe that Trump should be taken out of office right before an election. If you're a Democrat who thinks that, man, you're just insidious. I mean, you're just a freak. Unless you know he's going to win again, and I think he's going to win again. I realize that if he wins again, but he loses the Senate, then uh, that. Democratic Senate won't let him do anything. I think Trump's legacy is really grandiose. It's going to be an incredible legacy simply because of things that most Democrats aren't even paying attention, which is something that, thank God, Obama failed at. And that was nominating a lot of federal judges. The most powerful thing a president can do to leave a legacy as far as I'm concerned is to keep government really conservative. Because as you can see, when they're not conservative, what happens? Massive expansion of government. And when you expand government and you overspend, you have to depend on dollars to be printed. And if you have to expand government and print money because uh, you're not getting it all at once, you know, when people file their taxes, the vast majority of Americans don't pay on time. And I'm talking about not just majority, but the vast majority of the taxpayers. I'm not talking about the average the average folk who work their butts off and pay marginal taxes. I'm talking about that 20% that pays ninety percent of the taxes. Those taxes don't come in, don't come in on time. So in the meantime, government's still spending the money, so they're printing. And when they print the money, you think they're paying their bills with it. They're not paying their bills with it. What they're doing is paying off treasury bills, floating public bonds out there of all types, and paying those people when those bonds are due. Well, that money's then printed, pay off those bonds. That money goes into the marketplace. And if you owe us money, we might print a bunch of money for you to pay us back so that we could raise the interest rate by a point, a bit point. I think that's what the economic people call it. They call it the bit point which I believe is a percentage of a 1% bit points. And uh, they'll refinance your foreign debt. And you start paying us back on money we just printed and gave to you, so you can pay us back at a higher rate. Eh. And most foreign debtor nations don't pay us back, really. We just extend their loans further at a higher rate, print some money, send it out their way to their central banks, comes back with debt service included, and it just keeps on going on like that. Sometimes countries can leverage their their raw resources, their raw material, be it oil or corn, wheat, and whatever their country has. Uh, the government can pledge huge amounts of reserves through the through the commodities exchange that are pledged to the United States. In case or in lieu of paying back debts like collateral, and if they go two in arrears, then um, you just seize you just seize those assets. And uh, believe me, literally, the federal government, literally the armed forces, can literally seize boats full of oil, literally make them go to a port, and they're tied down, and that that oil on that tanker pays off whatever debt until they renegotiate the deal or they pay it off and we don't loan you again. And it's kind of hard to f- imagine that going on. And I'm not really sure that they would announce something like that, but it's, it's it happens. And Some people believe that Mubarak in Egypt got so in debt with the United States that uh, that whole revolution in Tariki Square was all under the guise of him not paying back his debts and they had to get him out. And look what happened after that. A total mess in Egypt. They called it a a natural uprising. And in fact, um, he was in debt and we weren't extending his loans. And by not extending his loans, uh, Egypt, if you know, uh, needs the biggest consumer of corn and wheat in all the world because... The same corn and wheat that that they feed their livestock, they also feed themselves in their bread products and their corn products, and they consume a lot of corn and wheat. Check it out. So imagine they don't really produce it either. It's all imported from the United States and in Europe. If you don't pay the bills, we just cut that off, and all of a sudden, you've got inflation. And they're very, very, very poor countries that you have to subsidize their wheat and corn or they'll starve. I think this is Bill. This is the Concrete Conservatives. This is yours truly Mac on the Rock, who I have the pleasure to speak
1: with. Hey Mark, it's Bill Hurley with NFIB
0: from Tallahassee. How are you? Well nice to meet you. I'm uh I MAC Mac, like Mac like uh okay. Mac cheese. You know Okay, I gotcha. All right. Uh, So, uh, you're basically defending small businesses uh, uh, from—now, is it uh, defending us small business owners from frivolous lawsuits, or are you just curbing litigation so that small business can expand and, and employ, and give us a little idea of what the Federation does?
1: Sure. Well, the National Federation of Independent Business is the nation's largest and oldest small business advocacy group. Uh, My responsibilities are Florida. We are a national group, but I represent over 10,000 small business owners across the state. Uh, NFIB represents uh, 300,000 small business owners nationwide. And my role is to defend free enterprise wherever it might be threatened. It just so happens one of the greatest threats comes from uh, the civil justice system uh, and uh, the trial bar.
0: Really? Does that mean attorneys? I'm sorry? Does that mean attorneys?
1: Well, big surprise, but that means, uh, yeah, small business owners tend to think we have an overly litigious state.
0: God bless you. Thank you for calling the concrete conservative because I had, every time attorneys call, I have that same little gripe that they pretty much just got us, you know, a chokehold on us. We asked them to defend us, but at the same time, uh, they know in their respective trades, in other words, the, the litigious nature of all their trades, and they know where the pitfalls are, and yet they do nothing to curb litigation. They do nothing to, they almost as if they love the meat, the the meat on the bone, to keep on having people suing each other. You believe that that is true, or you don't think it's that insidious?
1: Well, we know it's true. In fact, NFIB released a study a couple weeks ago. Uh, putting a fine number on the tort tax in this state, and uh, what our researchers discovered is that every Floridian pays uh, $719.01 per year uh, as uh, their tort tax uh, and the cost of the civil justice system, uh, over $10 billion a year is spent in florida in the civil justice system now you know we'll be the first ones to tell you that not every lawsuit is frivolous or unnecessary we participants in that civil justice system and we greatly depend on it but all we're saying is let's take a real clear-eyed look at what the cost of the civil justice system is and are there ways that we can reduce it are there ways we can have some rational talks about trying to reduce the friction costs in society uh, because all those costs are borne by everyone in the form of uh, not just higher insurance costs, but higher uh, co- consumer costs for products and services.
0: Now, uh, when when you say frivolous lawsuit, what industry do you think is the most prone to having frivolous lawsuits? Or, second part of this question was, if it, if it's not really hurt by frivolous lawsuits, what industry... Is just overregulated to the point where you almost have to sue each other j- just to get get through it all.
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, I would say the legal profession, but let me let me address this two ways. First of all, it's very different for a small independent business owner. You know, you want to sue some big corporate actor. Uh, well, they're going to have in-house legal counsel. They're going to be have insurance and reinsurance and offshore insurance and all sorts of consultants and they just take it in strike. They don't like it, uh, but they're ready for it. Uh, well, if a small independent business owner uh, uh, and their their number comes up and they're faced with a lawsuit, uh, very often they're not adequately insured. Uh, they don't have in-house legal counsel. Uh, they might not even have a, a attorney on retainer to, uh, to their business. And it's a real threat to the viability of that business. Uh, they've got to stay focused on the customers. They've got to stay focused on delivering a product and service. And when they're faced with a, a stock drop, and roll uh, incident like this, it can really disrupt the business. Now, I'll tell you what kind of businesses are, are more vulnerable than others. Well, it is sort of a roulette game and that it can happen to anyone. But I would say uh, businesses that – invite the public upon their property, uh, have retail customers uh, are, are a little bit more vulnerable because they're just engaging with the public more. Yeah, slip and so falls. Anyone in the restaurant, hospitality, retail business uh, can be, be very vulnerable. But not just those kinds of businesses. Businesses that send people to customers' homes, uh, all, think of all the service businesses out there, uh, can be very vulnerable as well. It's just increasing your exposure and increasing their risk.
0: Yeah, and for me personally, I I know exactly what you mean, and I agree with what you're saying, because I'm a Ace uh, Hardware uh, dealer owner, and a hardware store is uh, quite a tricky matter because you're selling products to fix things, but you're not actually going out and fixing. You're just supplying the products uh, to fix some, you know, something that's damaged. And sometimes the customer thinks, you know, for some reason, you know, you broke it. <laughs> no, man, you came to me. I'm trying to fix it for you but i really you know i i'm not the plumber i'm not the electrician i'm just the the parts guy right. and of course if the manufacturer has a faulty product that i have sold like a circuit that doesn't hold the amps that it says it does and it and it does damage to their home it can get tricky like you know you can see how someone would sue the electrician and the uh, the hardware store where they bought the product from you know it's it's not not fun at all now is there any other industry that like for instance you know has to deal with the environment that is also prone to litigation, like you know contaminating water, false ac- accusations of water qualities and stuff like that
1: right we're si- we saw an effort in of all places, Alachua County up where Gainesville is uh and and they're doing something very curious. they're extending a a uh, personhood, if you will to uh, natural features in the environment. Uh, in, in this instance, they had the Santa Fe River in mind, a very uh, fragile ecosystem, and the uh, the local government there wanted to confer uh, personhood on the river so that anyone uh, on behalf of the river could raise a lawsuit uh, from anyone, uh, anyone, business or industry, that might be threatening the uh, the well-being of that river. Now, that's a real innovation, and I'm I'm glad to say that we're seeing the Florida legislature uh, react to this uh, by uh, they are pursuing a preemption bill that would uh, repeal this local uh, ordinance and prevent any other governments from uh, passing such ordinances. But generally, that's how we fight these battles in Tallahassee. Is that the trial bar uh, is very often trying to uh, create new causes of action. Uh, they're not satisfied with the fact that you, as a business operator, uh, should you have uh, a, you know a, a slip and fall incident at your business uh, that that would create a cause of action for someone to, to potentially litigate. Uh, they're always getting very creative in finding uh, new torts.
0: Well, how about and the ADA? The legislature
1: uh, to, Oh, the ADA has been very, very uh, ripe and fertile ground for the trial lawyers. I think there's a, you know, a broad consensus among Americans that we want to open up our society to, uh, for greater mobility and, and use for all people, uh, but when that law becomes an opportunity uh, for trial lawyers to, uh, to basically shake down small businesses, uh, then we need to ask where's where's the greater public good here in this? Uh, it seems like it happens totally randomly, and uh, it's only a matter of you know bad luck that a small business owner can get uh, hit by some of these lawsuits. But the ADA was a, a huge cause of action. Now we're you know many decades into it, and uh, they're kind of perfecting their craft at extracting money from small business owners uh, over over violations. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, but even with a actual injured party.
0: Right. Uh, I know of one case locally where the a restaurant's been open since the you know mid-60s, and there is act, there is trouble uh, getting in and out with a wheelchair. And the building was built so long ago, and there are tenants in the building, so they can't really force the owner to you know knock down the window, expand the door... Uh, change the countertop, and all they could do really was remove one stool in their diner and that wheelchair could fit where that stool was but uh, didn't have a place to put their legs, you know, because the <laughs> the wheelchair was right up against the countertop, so there really wasn't a place to put the legs. And that turned into a year of litigation, just that nuance or I would say that uh, idiosyncrasy and uh, these people struggled with it, and they they they, they had to spend about fifty thousand dollars to clear the matter, and it was hanging over their head for a year. And they only had two employees, you know, so you can imagine it was a real struggle for them. And it was just brought up, it was just brought upon them because this person came, and he claimed he couldn't get into 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 the the actual uh, diner without having to get out from his wheelchair, so.
1: Well, they called them drive-by lawsuits because, you know, a, a an attorney would drive by a business. They might not even stop in and, and be able to spot uh, some ADA deficiencies from just from driving by and looking, looking at the business from the street. Uh, then they have a ready, stable of plaintiffs and send a letter to that business and make a demand. And, well, you know, you don't need to get them to pay off on every one of them to make a decent living. Uh, that made business owners feel like they're they're basically in a roulette game. But I'll tell you, the, the newest uh, threat on the ADA lawsuit it comes from uh, <clears throat> our modern means of commerce uh, and the Internet. Businesses need to recognize that when they build a website, uh, that needs to be ADA compliant as well. And so now some of the uh, trial bar are not even making the effort to get in their car and drive by the business to find uh, <clears throat> violations. They're doing it from the comfort of their their home or office, uh, just inspecting small business owners' websites, and if they're not ADA compliant, uh, finding a plaintiff and sending a demand letter.
0: Yep, that's that, uh, that,
1: that can happen you know, 24 hours a day. Uh, especially, a for bl- especially for the especially for the blind, come, right? It needs to be done from business owners in that regard.
0: So that must be really uh, cumbersome for a website because the. It implies the blind as well, so you have to have some kind of uh, icon that I don't know how they would see to click on. I guess it would have to be uh, keyboard-related, where everything on the site would be described in, a, in an audio. Has is, is it gotten to that extent?
1: Well, you know, I, I guess through every challenge, new businesses pop up, but there are, you know, most uh, uh, you know public relations firms now are familiar with this. So if you go to a professional to build your website – You know They'll build those uh, uh, options into it so you're compliant, uh, but that's not always available uh, for a small business owner to outsource their web development.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When
1: they don't, they can get caught into a trap where uh, it's not ADA compliant.
0: So what would the Federation do in that case? Would you a pool of people who are suffering from this uh, persecution, per se? I don't want to be hyperbolic here, but— but yeah. You know,
1: we do, the NFIB does have a legal center and occasionally, you know, we can't get involved in every case, uh, but when we find one that's uh, potentially setting a, a, a very dangerous precedent, uh, we will join in a lawsuit and help defend small business owners. Uh, the real pointy end of our sword, though, is in our advocacy. Uh, so we try to defeat legislation that uh, tends to expand causes of action. Uh, and every once in a while, we, we uh, are able to advance the ball on our side a little bit. Now, of course, the ADA is uh, a federal issue. Uh, NFIB does have a very large and effective presence in Washington, D.C. Uh, but here it comes. You know, Washington doesn't always uh, – is not the most responsive uh, level of government in our great country. So many of these battles uh, uh, end up being – uh, debated and fought more vigorously and uh, with greater effect at, at the state level,
0: which is where you guys are uh, more armed and ready to go to fight that battle before it becomes a federal issue.
1: Well, yeah. A- again, except in the ADA, there's there's not much yeah. that the state can do it being federal law. Uh, there are some things that uh, uh, can be addressed, and you know, this year we are tackling the uh, issue, and I know. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before, Mac, about lawsuit lenders, and we have legislation now, you know, in the fourth week of session that is passing through committees. Uh, that's going to shine a bright light on the practice of uh, lawsuit lending, where a third party uh, comes in to a lawsuit uh, and kind of sizes it up and sees what they think it's worth, and make a cash money offer to the plaintiff. Uh, and uh, at that point, the plaintiff is is good. Uh, then the, the the lender basically reaps the reward of the lawsuit. So let's say, right in the case of a business like yours, let's say there's a slip and fall incident, and they look at it, and say, well, we think it's worth twenty five thousand uh, dollars. Here's twenty five thousand dollars. You you know, before you even go to court. reap that reward be... uh, they're not even known uh that it, sometimes their participation in a lawsuit is not even known uh, to the judge it's not known to the jury it's not known to the defendant or the defendant's counsel uh and uh when these people do win their lawsuit uh they're they're expected to repay these loans at a very high interest rate so we yeah like a credit card interest rate Jeez, that's higher than the
0: third that the attorney used to ask for.
1: <laughs> it's higher than you know payday loans. Uh, of course, they say, "Well, there's an awful high risk involved." But uh, we're capping. Uh, we'd love to cap it at eighteen percent, which is Florida's usury law. Uh, right now, the bill is at thirty percent, and they actually had the uh, the gumption to stand up in front of a legislative committee and say, "Well, well, at thirty percent, we can barely stay in business."
0: Well, good um, then, go out of business. I, I
1: don't <laughs> too but I'd like to get 30% on on my money.
0: Absolutely. Um now
1: They could string it out. and they're going to pursue that case to the nth degree because they've already paid out a benefit,
0: and they're also get their money back. And they're also likely to go to trial and not settle out Of course, and they're also the point I was trying to make is that they're more likely to go to trial and not settle out, which is a burden to the system. change the tune a little bit, it might might touch upon federal again. What about the EEOC when a bunch of employees gather together, they all worked at a place at different times even, and some attorney puts them all in touch and they all fire a lawsuit against an employer over back pay or lack of overtime pay and the the business owner really pretty much is going in there as Big Brother or, I mean, Big Brother's (laughs) hounding the business owner as the, the money man, and they really can't win these cases at the EEOC. Is that something the federation would be involved, uh, Would be interested in?
1: Well, uh, you know, this is an issue that transcends both federal and state, and, uh, and soon it's going to transcend to the local level. In South Florida, uh, Miami-Dade County has a, a uh, county-level wage board uh, that can get involved in wage disputes, AND EVEN HAS A STAFF THAT CAN HELP FACILITATE uh, PLAINTIFFS PURSUING THEIR uh, QUASI-LEGAL RIGHTS UNDER THIS uh, uh, COUNTY JURISDICTION, Uh, BUT AT THE STATE LEVEL, GENERALLY WORKPLACE RIGHTS uh, uh, ARE DEALT WITH, YOU KNOW, WE HAVE FEDERAL CIVIL RIGHTS STATUTES AND WE HAVE uh, STATE CIVIL RIGHTS STATUTES AS WELL. Uh, THERE'S A REALLY Interesting piece of legislation that's being pursued this year, uh, called the Crown Act, that would establish. And you know, our our civil rights are 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 based on you can't bias against someone based on their uh, religion, upon their their race, upon gender upon pregnancy, you know, uh, pregnancy status, and so forth, and those are all well-accepted standards. The Crown Act would add hairstyle as a protected civil class. And actually this Of course, is a, and uh, example, does that I
0: include know. transgender as you well? You're
1: right. Uh, it would establish hairstyle. And there was a very uh, well-publicized incident where, I think, a, a, a high school wrestler who had, you know, long dreadlocks was not allowed to compete. In a high school wrestling match, because a an official decided that his long dreadlocks were either a hazard or some manner unfair, and they threw the kid out of the competition. And this uh, created a lot of a lot of uh, uh, resentment in in uh, the African American community, and and uh, they feel that, that in some instances, uh, their hairstyles present them with some. Um, burdensome biases, and so now there's a bill in Tallahassee to uh, allow hairstyle to be a protected class. Now, well, I mean, you, in, know, in, you can even be sympathetic to this cause. Not when it right, comes to wrestling. You <laughs> ask yourself the questions of you know, have we really thought this through? Is, is this you know, how does this happen? You know, how does this work out in the day to day operations of a business? Um, you know, are there what kind of lawsuits could this open up a small independent business to? Uh, So as the legislation is moving, you know, we're just gently trying to remind legislators that they need to ask themselves these questions. Uh, It sounds like, you know, it's all fair. You don't want people being biased against. Uh, But uh, let's think this through and how this uh, practically affects uh, businesses in their day-to-day operations.
0: Uh, I can think of uh, the hairstyle being a problem in wrestling because so, the, the competitors are so close together. I can see someone's dreadlocks getting in, into a person's face to the point where they can't see what the other person's doing to them or gets caught in their mouth or it literally wraps around their neck. <laughs> um, I'm talking about well, the... Co- I can
1: certainly see people in the manufacturing sector operating dangerous equipment, yeah. high-speed equipment, rotating revolving equipment. You can't have... You can't have someone with a lot of uh, things hanging off their head that can get caught in machinery. So, you know, we don't want to be biased against anyone, but there's some practical matters both in, you know, health, safety and welfare that that need to be thought through on these issues.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, a lot of people just don't realize the nuances in so many laws. And there's always an attorney dying to to make a buck uh, litigating this stuff. Those are those are. Really uh, very specific instances you point out to us. It's quite a learning experience. And before you came on, I was asking the audience that I'm looking forward to hearing stuff that I'm just not aware of. And you just pointed to them out. I mean, hair hair and sports uh, leads me to this next question. What does the Federation feel about uh, men who are transgender uh, competing in girls sports and therefore eliminating girls opportunities to get scholarships because the man is going to win at the, in the 440 if he's a male in track well, and field yeah
1: uh, you know, until we represent some sports leagues we're going to we, we haven't taken a position Oh, that's right them, because you're more business for other people to debate uh, So that's not something the federation
0: takes on because it's not small business because they're all athletic associations that are usually non-profit they're not business related
1: right right well yeah show me a member of my- Independent business that's been affected by that, and we'll weigh that. But you know, we've got plenty of battles, but that ain't one of them. We'll let other people fight that one
0: out. Okay, so now that you mentioned hairstyle. What happens when, um, where when the issue is a, a tattoo and the tattoo is like offensive, and uh, the employees, you know, got a tattoo that says F U U on his chest and he's wearing a muscle shirt, and every customer that comes into your store, he's basically being insulted by. It. He walks into the store, and that employee's got a, a tattoo that just says flat out "F you." And what are there cases about that as well? I mean, if they got hairstyle, I, I suppose tattoo's got to be on the on the ledger too.
1: I don't know if there. I'm sure there are cases on that. I don't know of any. You know that pits you know free speech against the you know the the you know right of an employer to uh, meet the expectations of their their customers. And, you know, as a general rule, it used to be, you know, a safe operating zone for a business owner to say, well, as long as I'm treating all my employees the same uh, and, and fairly, uh, then I can stay out of trouble. So, you know, it used to be where a business owner could say, well, we just don't allow any visible tattoos. You, you, you're welcome to have them, uh, but they can't be visible. You to wear long sleeves or you would wear clothing that, that doesn't present tattoos. Um, But I'm not so sure that that's safe ground for employers anymore. Uh, Again, people have to consult their attorney. We're we're just, you know, we face the issues that the legislature brings in front of us, and we haven't seen anything uh, yet uh, defending people's right of free speech on their their skin. But I'm guessing that can't be too far away.
0: Now, what's what's number one on your mind in this latest session for the Federation?
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you, uh, here's the thing. We have a red-hot economy right now, and I guess we're breaking some economic rules because some people predicted a recession back uh, in the late summer and early fall. Uh, we didn't see it coming uh, because all of our economic numbers told us that, that the small business sector was still growing. So we're looking for policies from the state that are going to help sustain that. Uh, there is a little apprehension that uh, revenue revenue growth is tapering. We still have revenue growth, but it's not quite growing the way it has in the last couple of years. Uh, but still, we think the legislature can invest uh, a couple hundred million dollars in tax cuts for the small business sector to help keep them vibrant. And the number one tax that we're looking at is the rent tax. Florida is the only state in the nation that charges a sales tax on commercial leases so if you uh, and you're i don't mean to get into your business, but if you uh, i i'm I'm affected your property uh, even from yourself uh you're paying a sales tax on on that
0: on absolutely that my rate. my I have a second store uh second story uh that our offices yes, yeah, so I pay the sales tax on the rents
1: yeah, we're the only state in the nation that does that, and we think it holds back a lot of economic growth we've got convinced the legislature to knock. A half a point off that over several years uh but that still leaves us at a base of 5.5 percent not including a local option uh i understand it's expensive by the time you add up all the commercial property in this state and try to start cutting down the rate uh you know you're, you're talking about a couple hundred million dollars but we do have revenue growth and we do think if the, if the legislature does a tax cut package are very likely to do, you know, the sales tax holidays that they do every year. Uh, but if they really want to invest in, in the future of our economy, they'd be taking another look at taking a, another slice off of the rent tax.
0: Now, would it be constitutional to uh, maybe allow them to charge you the rent, uh, charge you the sales tax for the initial year of the lease and then make it prohibited on the renewals or in the second years of the lease? Would that make I don't
1: sense? see why not. You hey, know, they're hundred ways we can skin this cat you know most of our members are affected this way this is a standard way that small business owners build wealth you go out you start a business uh and then you go out maybe as a, a different entity you know maybe you create a different corporation or maybe you buy it personally but you buy a building then you move the business into the building the business pays a rent and that asset of that building uh accrues to the business owner and very often it's their retirement plan uh so we have a lot of taxpayers where there's a hundred percent commonality between the business ownership between the person the business who's renting the commercial location and the owner of that commercial location it's both ma and pa business owner
0: oh absolutely our community
1: it starts to feel like an income tax because they're just moving money from left pocket to the right so man, we took a look at let's focus on exempting out those people and uh, we shouldn't have been surprised. But what we initially have discovered is that that's a huge portion of Florida taxpayers. So you what, per- know, what percentage ways to take uh, to make this a little more focused on the small in- and independent business owner. Uh, but still, it's a, it's a big, big tax number and uh, uh, it's going to take us years to eliminate it. Uh, if you have some listeners that have been around for a while, they'll remember that we we once had a a uh, intangibles tax in this state, which was a tax on uh, intangible stocks and bonds and investments. Uh, it took us nine years uh, to finally eliminate that. Uh, it took us most of the Bush administration uh, chipping away at it. So with a little bit of determination, we know we can get rid of the... Uh, rent tax entirely, but they've got to stick with it every year and keep knocking down the rate a little bit as much as they can afford to.
0: Now, you all, uh, you're free to uh, go ahead and, and and say where they could reach your organization and uh, your website, and I imagine it's nonprofit and people contribute to the federation, or is it membership, uh, b- small business membership? Um,
1: sure. Uh, we love having new members in our organization join the fight uh we're very proud to represent uh independent business owners and only independent business owners we don't have any uh large cor- publicly traded corporations in our membership so it never happens where you know some big business comes in and says this is how you're going to feel about something we we absolutely represent main street and we're real easy to find just uh, you can pull up at the national federation of independent business or just Google for NFIB. Uh, from there, you can navigate to any one of our state operations uh, or check out what we're doing in Washington, D.C., for small independent business owners. And I promise you, on every page, there's a button where people can click to join here. We have uh, our dues normally start at around $195 a year, and uh, we think we provide a real value for uh, protecting the, the right to own and operate your own business in this country for that price. And if business owners uh, don't stand up for themselves, I promise you, no one else is going to do it for them.
0: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I appreciate your call. Now, there's one point I wanted to, and I wanted to say this earlier because you brought something up that I think uh, the industry should know. Right now there is... Uh, you're familiar with uh, the leakage in 401k pension uh, plans where you're allowed to borrow half of what uh, the your assets have accumulated, you're allowed to borrow half of it for other uses. Well, there's a huge market that I think that uh, the Federation should look into because a lot of pension plans are allowing people to borrow the half by law. But if they become disabled uh, and they can't pay, one way to— kind of counteract these attorneys that come in and fund these uh, lawsuits is for there to be an insurance like a mortgage or, uh, you know, like a mortgage insurance on the money you borrow so that you don't lose the other half of the 401k if you become disabled at your job because you have to pay back that loan if you had borrowed from it. Well, that's a $100 billion uh, outstanding leakage that's already ongoing, and there's over 90 million people who've borrowed against their 401Ks in some capacity or another, if they become disabled, you can imagine the pressure they have to pay back their 401K, and especially if there's a death in the family. I mean, the wife can't even bury the person because they can't use the 401K that's outstanding because it's going to pay off the loan that sometimes comes from being, uh, you know, fired, being unemployed. And this uh, this product is out there, and it's uh, out there fairly recently, and I think the industry should know about it because I'm sure the, those attorneys you're describing, uh, they're going to catch on to it sooner than uh, than ever. And I think people who are disabled or fired from their job, who have borrowed against their 401K, should know about uh, the loan eraser program that's out there. And uh, you all should look into it because if you don't, the, the, your opposition counsel will. I just wanted to leave—
1: uh I'll send that up to my Washington office. I'll put some notes together on it. And I I hope that they're on it, but uh yeah, I, I can't say for sure.
0: Yeah, com, and it's very new and it uh you pay the lonely Eraser program uh uh basically a premium like an insurance premium and it's got its own market um uh, and it's not really in the insurance business per se. They catered they catered the business for that to keep away from insurance uh, regulations. And basically they pay off your your outstanding debt if you become disabled or if you're fired. And it has to be your employer doing that to you or your physical ailment happening. But it can't be because you quit your job. It has to be because you're fired or become disabled on the job. So anyway, thank you very much for calling and uh, hope to have you back soon.
1: Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Mac.
0: It was a nice conversation. Uh, You taught me a lot. I hope the audience appreciated that. Take care. Well, there you have it, man. There's uh, if you're a small business owner as I am, that was very informative. So as you know, there's people that uh, that are that are, are are just put out of business by ill ill-intended in, uh, folks, and like you like you heard, man, you know, for 195 dollars, isn't isn't it equitable? I, I think so. So I very uh, I you know I. I think that was a fantastic call. I hope uh, you call that again. And um, it's a situation where, think about it. Tomorrow, bricks-and-mortar stores everywhere, with the exception of hardware stores and restaurants, a lot of these stores are going to close down. I mean, I haven't bought clothes in a clothing store in over 15 years. Really haven't. Just... Just buy the clothes online. Men, especially. They're the last persons that like to try on stuff, and they'll just buy extra large, large, wait for it, put it on. If they don't like it, you think they're going to even return it? No. You're going to give it away to someone. Women are more interested in trying it on, looking in the mirror, going with friends, going in and out of the changing room, looking in the mirror again. Do you like it? Do you like it? Your friend says yes. Your friend says no, whatever. Or your daughter or your or God forbid you pull your son into the, the buying, but men, man online, buying clothes online, there's very few exceptions where, like, for instance, the suit, but even now, you know, the suit you obviously want tailored. So you're going to buy the suit at the, at the suit store. And that you become a woman for that moment. You go in there and you got to look in the mirror and you got to look, you know, Spit shining beautiful because it's usually associated with your work or an event or a business where you got to look sharp. So men have a tendency to not want to look like they're wearing a cheap suit. And if it's going to be a cheap suit, you definitely want to tailor it so it doesn't look like a cheap suit. Some people really are really anal about it. They have to have, you know, fashion oriented name brand suits. And that, I believe, are those litigating attorneys, you know, those freakazoid attorneys, like I told you. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I, I, what got I say? So I really enjoyed that conversation. I really appreciate the call. So back to what we're talking about before the call came in. And that is the present state of affairs. In these impeachment hearings one thing we can say in Federalist 65 that you heard both the House managers and Trump's defense the founders made it very clear we have to give this right of impeachment it's the ultimate authority to take a president out but it wasn't to be used lightly and quite frankly the Republicans did this to themselves because they impeached Bill Clinton over the Monica Lewinsky scandal. That was tacky. Because it started off as a whitewater, land land grab, land steal, and someone went to jail, if you remember. I believe uh, a banker, um, uh, McDougal, I think he went to jail, and who funded this whitewater thing. But there was nothing near there on the Clintons. So why did it turn into a sescapade in the, you know, in the Oval Office? And why wouldn't a man, as most men would, try to protect their marriage, even under oath, and lie? And we took that to impeachment, man. And the Senate said, no way. It's not an impeachable offense. You know, you just don't do it. Lo and behold, Donald Trump gave them a perfect reason to take it back on us. So once again... I, as a conservative, not necessarily a Republican, man, but I'm definitely conservative. There's very little parts of me, of my person, that is uh not conservative. There's some things that are totally, you know, pious conservatism, and where you think you're you're some goody two shoes, and I'm not a goody two shoes, so I don't pretend to be a goody two shoes. Um, I'm a person who believes in God, and I'm a Catholic, but, uh, you know, what, I'm not pious, you, you know, virtuous. Like last night at the at the halftime show, that was a stripper halftime show. <laughs> it's that simple. But I realize it's entertainment. I also realize children are watching. It uh, used to be America's game. Well, we're all being gamed, so we're— we're, we are America's game. They're just gaming us. So I'm not so pious as to, you know, criticize it and try to, you know, stand on my high horse and, you know, look down. Because the truth is, it was awesome. It was sexy. It was fantastic dancing. Had a certain jive to it. It was quite long. I mean, it was a, you know, it's an extra long half time. They got to be careful about that because, that could that could create injuries for the players if they're sitting sitting in a locker room for too long, man. They freeze up on you. These high octane athletes, man, can rest, but they can't rest that much. You can't freeze them up because then they gotta stretch again, they gotta do all that stuff. So these halftime shows could get out of hand. But it is du- duplicit for the NFL to pretend to be uh, really prosecutorial or very judgmental on their athletes for domestic abuse, abuse of women, um, allowing women to be referees and now coaches, soon-to-be head coaches, um, opening the doors to all the genders, but at the same time very sexist sexist in allowing that halftime show that was completely sexist. I mean, Jennifer was all over the place, and her hands were going places where they shouldn't have gone on prime time. You know? Shakira, she was fine. I think she stayed within the realm of sexiness too. And she's 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 hot. And so it was Jennifer at 50, man. You gotta say, whoa. Yesterday's fifty boys, today's 30, you know what I mean? And Jennifer, but man, did they have to go stripper pole? I mean, come on. Did she have to go stripper pole? I mean, come on. That's just not cool. What the hell? I would have enjoyed it just as much without the stripper pole. I mean, come on, just the costume was enough, you know, the, that was it. So uh, I think that was a rabbit hole, because now I don't know how to get out of that, because where am I going to go from there? All being said, that's the kind of conservative I am. I, uh, for instance, something that, this is how I'm going to get out of it, to show you that I'm capable of a little bit of liberalism, I, I have no problems with legalizing drugs and and, and, uh, with the exception of the psychotic ones like heroin and uh, you know I don't mind taxing marijuana to the gills it's just another sin tax just like they tax booze really tax it a lot if it's going to reduce my taxes sure it's going to reduce my business taxes why not tax recreational drugs to the high heavens just like they tax the, uh, the much higher killer which is good old cigarette tax the hell of the cigarettes but reduce the gas tax unless unless you can give me a, a reason why we shouldn't because incarcerating people for marijuana position that's a joke I mean wouldn't you want that bed available for rapists murders pedophiles I mean come on Just, you know, empty out the prisons for marijuana possession, for Christ's sake. And I got to add, unfortunately, this one might strike it as odd or inconsistent with being conservative. Cocaine as well. Um, I think cocaine would just lose its fancy if it were legal. I just think it would stay expensive. It would ruin your career. It would still be embarrassing to you to go around you know, chewing up your face at work. It's it's one of those drugs that if it were legalized, it would probably just nobody would be really interested in it. It would be just for the freaks, freak of nature. And uh it's not something you can really go to work with. It's not something you can, you know, hide. Because people on that drug really act up and they they become contortionists. You know, their faces all contorted and But, you know, if you're going to be selling it, you know, you tax it. So there you go. That makes me about as liberal as I can. Now, when it comes to abortion, well, I'm really anti abortion all nine months. But I understand that a lot of people don't believe in God. I think a vast majority of Americans, whether they like it or not, are nihilists. They really don't. They might say they they believe in faith, and but are they obedient? Do they sacrifice for the faith? I don't think so. I think that to be a Catholic, to be a Protestant, to believe in Jesus Christ requires a certain obedience and a certain sacrifice to other people, to spouses, to children, to community. Put yourself on the line. Profess the word. Uh, profess His good fortune, His good will. Believe in the power of redemption. All those qualities that make you faithful, I don't think the majority of Americans really told that line. Therefore, until the the fetus has a spine, meaning it feels, uh, you have to give the woman two months to abort. One month to be late on her menstrual cycle, the other month to discuss it with her family, and then the the violent act must occur no later than 12 weeks. And that, that's stretching it for me. 12 weeks already. I've seen the fetus at 12 weeks. And he or she looks very human, feeling pain. You only need to see the video of a child defending itself from a cranial tool out to kill it inside the womb to know that, Life begins at conception. I mean, it's it's there. But if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in anything, I can see you wanting to abort um, the baby. But you just gotta narrow it down to from jellyfish, you know, to scramble egg to jellyfish to fetus. Man, there's no more than ten weeks there, and it just gotta happen. And it has, and I have to be human. Uh, instinct about it because a woman sometimes are late and therefore they need, they need time to realize they're pregnant. It's just the way it is. Because otherwise, you know, you the women who are pro-choice have one reality that, that is pretty accurate. What will women do if they're going to abort no matter what? And that's what you want to make sure they have no excuse to do. To create butchery of themselves and then jeopardize other people, and God forbid, going to those extents, and the baby's born anyway, and now you've got a mutilated baby or a damaged baby that for sure they're going to put up for adoption or give to the state, and you just can't have that either. So uh, that's probably the ne- probably the last time I'm going to talk about abortion in any way or form, but I figured since this is my first day solo on the Concrete Conservative. The first day without Ed. Um. See you, Ed. Mr. Ed. Uh, I guess I might as well just say it because it's an issue that is not, not something that I need to address all the time. It is a harsh reality. Most people are nihilists. I know the entire Democratic Party are a bunch of nihilists. I don't think there's anybody in the Democratic Party who are church-going but are for full-ended abortion, are church going, and therefore the welfare state are church going and want men competing in women's sports just because they're supposed to those men are supposed to feel normal when they're abnormal because they want to be women. Um, those that's those are concepts in nihilism. Sorry to say it, man, but if you start rationalizing the irrational and you start encouraging your kid just because they or I don't know gay or lesbian or that they can change their gender just because they want to well they can go ahead and do it you can't prevent them from doing it, but really uh, encouraging them or uh not taking them to go see a counselor and understanding the implications of that so young I, you know I don't see the i don't I don't see where we're going with this as parents I really don't. Once they're 18, hey, what can I tell you? I have an 18-year-old. She's 18. It's that simple. She can make all her decisions. The law says so. There's nothing I can say about it. But leave it at 18, even when it has to do with sex change. Just stays at 18, period. In fact, uh, we should be able to prevent our children from changing their uh, genitalia and Changing their their gender by hormones or otherwise until they're eighteen, you just gotta hold off on it. Period. I mean, why not? The Law's already established; it's doable, and I don't believe the child is endangering themselves by just waiting till they're eighteen. And they're, tell me otherwise. Sometimes I have callers call in. Just so you know. I have a toll free number, 1 645 9773, which is actually WSQF. So 1 645 WSQF if you're calling from out of the state or out of town. Live stream, you can always hear us on live stream. We're low power. So if you want to plug in your phone to your car to listen anywhere in South Florida, you can go to two sites. One is really cool called Radio.Garden. And that's like a Google Earth. You Google Earth and you use your thumb and your fingers on your iPhone. And I imagine on your Android, of which I don't own, so I'm not sure for sure. But uh, you uh, open it up and um, zero in on the island of Key Biscayne off the coast of Miami. For those who are listening to us on the Internet already, wsqfradio.com forward slash live you also have the Radio.Garden version of it. It's really cool. And if you want to listen to other live streams, Radio.Garden is definitely the place to go because all the live streams are there. You'll just see them pop up over the globe. And I like to go into the live streams coming out of Cuba. Late at night, I have a show that um, I just spontaneously don't... I go whenever I'm annoyed. And I... I start talking to Cuba at midnight, when people can hear anti-communist radio, and they're listening in low volume in some apartment where where everybody else is asleep. And I start talking anti-communist, anti-Castro stuff, and I respond to live feeds from radios in Cuba, and I I call them out when they start talking, start doing state propaganda. And uh, but uh there you just got to be interested in uh, listening to me. And I don't know exactly what to say about when I do this, when I talk to Cuba in the middle of the night, but it's usually right around uh, Friday, ten eleven at night, Saturday, midnight, Sunday, midnight. It's always late at night because I know during the day, no one's going to be listening to this kind of rhetoric from Miami. But, you know, Communist party people, party uh, acolytes, party members in Cuba have the internet, whereas the common folk in Cuba do not have the internet. And if they do have the internet, I'm sure my site is blocked. And if you want to block my site, here it is, wsqfradio.com forward slash live. That's the live stream for all our music. Since we're low power radio, we're community radio, our programming does not, you know, encompass the entire 24 hours. So our shows are about five hours of the day. So guess what you get when you're not listening to us? Rock and roll, no commercials. And we can listen to the oldies because, you know, my children listen to terrible music. But some of the music that they played at that halftime show was terrible music. And they brought in some Led Zeppelin and Queen, which I thought was very cool. So they brought in both the Generations or several generations, to entertain us at halftime. But, man, today's music sucks. It just bites. So I'm going to uh, take a break here because I'm getting caught in mouth, and uh, I got to drink some water here. And how about some uh, Leonard Skinner? Give me three steps. Give me three steps. Give me three steps more. Back in a moment with the Concrete Conservative. back well I t- um, see here on the TV that uh, senators are giving the reasons why they may or may not vote for Trump's uh, acquittal because it looks very hard to reach the two-thirds in the Senate and uh, the people who are most affected uh, voting against Trump are Democrats running for re-election in places where Trump has won and uh, uh, Roy Moore in Alabama, Mansion in West Virginia. And I can't remember the sexy chick from Arizona. I forgot her name. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, Salim, I think is her name. I don't know. And I think she won it uh, under nefarious circumstances when she beat Mike Sally, who has now been appointed by the governor to serve as a senator, the other senator from Arizona. And I believe she's up as well. So... It's uh, it's interesting. I didn't think two senators could be up for re-election from the same state. I thought it had to be staggered. I'm a little confused. So maybe Max Sally is not up in this 2020. Um, but it doesn't seem like she would be either, or the other senator. Uh, forgot her name. Uh, you know, what can I say? I'm alone today. Sorry, Ed. See, Ed would have had the name. He's he doesn't forget anything. So I think there's going to be a harsh reality here that a bunch of Democratic senators are going to have to vote for acquittal just to survive their own re-election. And uh, what do you think about Trump's tweet today? you got to start thinking he's doing this stuff on purpose. I mean, how can he congratulate the Kansas City Chiefs and think for a moment that he didn't know that they were from Missouri, not Kansas? And there's a city in Kansas named kansas city and there's a city in missouri that's kansas city but for him to to not know that hello <whistles> that's a serious biden style gaffe if i'll say so myself so as his supporter i'll be like the rest of the numb nuts, and i'll say oh he did it on purpose i mean come on man i think the tweet was uh I can't say, I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't remember verbatim, but he says, I'd like to congratulate Kansas City Chiefs for their victory. I'm sure the state of Kansas is very proud of you, as is the rest of the United States. So you can imagine. Everybody got up this morning and went straight, straight to Facebook. And sure enough, you see the, the Kansas moniker over Missouri in graffiti format. Thank you, Mr. President. I really appreciate your compliments. So, uh, uh, what can I tell you, man? President, sometimes you just do things, man, that you just love to pick a fight. You could care less who you're insulting. And quite frankly, I agree with Rush. You're the bully on the block, and we've been bullied for 100 years now with... Legislative majorities in the Democratic Party with 11 filibuster-proof senates to R-0 since 1911. So we got a bully now who's fighting back. The least likely among us came out of nowhere, won the election, beat my candidate, Ted Cruz, and kicked our butts. And now I'm with you, bro. Just keep on punching, man. They're coming after you, and you just keep on punching. I just love your audacity. I'm with Candace Owens on this one. I just love the audacity of Donald J. Trump. The guy is audacious, man. He's a flawed person, as we all are, one way or another. And he just keeps on counterpunching. He's taking on everybody. Every single entity, institution, organization that represents the left or the super left, as in totalitarian, despotic communism. Think about it. He's taken on China. He's taken on North Korea. He's taken on Russia, Iran, and all the rest of Middle Eastern com- countries that might want to do us harm. Then, as if that isn't enough, he's taken on Venezuela, Cuba. Mexico to some degree. (sighs) And that isn't enough? Now, from within, DOJ, FBI, DIA, CIA, NSA, and the IRS. And he's still standing. And he doesn't even give the explanations why they're coming after him. Other than, I won the election. I mean, there's so many times where he could have explained to us why they're after him. And he just doesn't. He just keeps on saying it's a up. It's a hoax. It's a call hoax. The, the call was perfect. Well, come on, man. That's why I wanted Ted Cruz. Because I don't think he would have punched this hard. I don't think Ted uh, would have done or could have done. I probably would have wanted to do, but couldn't have done it in this manner which is the crush, the fake news operation that is in national media in this country. It's been going on for a long time. Since the turn of the century, you should see some of the stuff on my website that I've got. You go to the the public school website, uh, which is the reinvention of the public school system. It's parentguardianships.schools.com, com. You'll see the some of the quotes there right at the turn of the century about the media's selling us out. So they've been selling us out since the beginning of the progressive era. But to be able to get people to believe it, that's 100% credit to Donald J. Trump's fake news lexicon. To the point where the left is using it on us now. Anytime we post something that they really don't like, they'll call it fake news too. So you know it's working when they're using it. So that is part of par for the course, for Donald Trump to crush that gra- glass ceiling, get young people to, you know, not believe the headlines just because they read the headlines and not believe it's news unless it appears in the New York Times and the Washington Post because they're the the two biggest generators of fake news out there. I mean, they just come up with their own narratives. And I came to this conclusion of why the media has been with liberalism um, you know, from the get-go. Basically, why is it supported the progressive movement? Because newspapers obviously have to sell newspapers. Therefore, they have to sell ads to fund the newspaper, the especially the printed newspaper that's so expensive. But I've got this theory, and I'm going to repeat this theory all the time because I believe it's true. I believe that the... The party of government has to promote government, the expansion of because that's where all the money is. why that's where all the money is? Well, it's 38 percent of the 22 trillion dollar American economy. and if it's 32 to 38 percent of the economy, then it becomes the third largest economy in the world all by itself if it's the third largest economy all by itself, then it needs to be large and inefficient so that everybody can steal from it. It's that simple. If I told you what was the largest economy in the world, you would say the United States. If I told the China man what's the largest economy in the world, he would say China. So we'll take it as one and two. Take your pick. But what's the third largest economy in the world? Some people would say China. No. Japan. Yes. India, perhaps, but it's really the United States government by itself, the third largest economy in the world, two trillion larger than Japan. Hello? Think about it. Count everything the United States has at its disposal federal lands, money coming in, one or two trillion in taxes coming in. I say one or two trillion as if, you know, the difference between one and two trillion is no big deal. It's just trillion. Well, guess what? It's no big deal because it's all printed anyway out of thin air. Okay. Now think of all the buildings it owns. Think about all it buys, just a procurement alone. And thank God we're still a free market economy. Therefore, the government is buying it from you and I in some way or form. I think of, uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, a food company that supported the troops in World War One and made the the, the sealed-packed uh, cold food that the soldiers ate, you know, that they were given in little cans and little envelopes, sealed envelopes. And that became Chef Boyardee. Well, that became a cannery and a business after the war. There it is, in the economy. A major brand, major cannery. Uh, Chef boyardi and uh, it's got its start back in World War One, selling army army food. So it's the, the beautiful thing. You know, the military uh, gets to create itself, gets to renovate, gets to innovate, gets to invent, and then sell to the government, to the Department of Defense. And yet when they want to sell abroad, their agent is the federal government. So on top of that, they're like the exclusive salesperson for the finest military hardware in the world. Exclusively. You can't sell rockets to anyone like the Ukraine. You can't sell javelins to the Ukraine without the United States government. You can't sell anything to a foreign government without the Department of Defense. Okay. Just in the, just when it has to do with military, so imagine that's a huge profit center for the federal government. So anytime a liberal says, "Can't believe we, we have such a huge defense budget." I mean, can you blame us? What do you think we're in? The, you think you guys still believe in peace on earth? I mean, come on, man. Are you serious, people, people, folks? The human race has been at war since the beginning of time. It ain't ever going to happen any other way. Countries are divided this way. New nations are created this way. There's just a limited amount of resources for a small section of our society to live really lavishly while everybody else starves to death. It's the harshest reality. I understand. I mean, as a Catholic, oh, you know, I'm not supposed to be saying this. Come on, man. This is real. The nations. Land remains the same and the population keeps on increasing. So if the population keeps on increasing and the land remains the same, then there's a finite amount of resources and a finite amount of people who can have access to these resources, process these resources, and make them available to those who can pay for these resources. And there's nothing fair about any of these things. Plus, there's nothing fair about how you and I are born and raised. I can't feel bad, and I can't persecute myself and lambast myself because I was born into a family that excelled, that super overachieved. But my father, for instance, he was born to not necessarily humble means, really unfair means, or he just had this, a real harsh reality. And on top of that, exiled from his country of birth. And boy, did he make it work. He used to always say, gracias, Fidel, because he made it here. He said that he would have just been a regular schmuck in Cuba, just, you know, just living a life of, you know, paycheck to paycheck, like 70, 80% of this country. Just natural harmony of things sometimes turns life into, uh, you know, paying your bills and living day to day and, you know, two or three paychecks away from living under a bridge, that kind of stuff. And these are real harsh realities for people. And those who are born to in squalor, those who are born to dysfunctional homes, uh, those who are born not knowing who their father is, uh, those who are born with disabilities, those who are born with you know, terrible circumstances, those who are born with uh, moms that are not really there for them, uh, those who are born where moms don't have a chance to be there for them, those who are born with really troubled brothers and sisters. These things are all very unfair. There is no such thing as equality or fairness. When it comes to equality, who in the hell wants to be equal? Most people don't want to be equal. They want to be better than the next guy. They want to overachieve. They want to supersede their peers in success or in sports or intelligence or just in shallow stuff like the nicest shoes, the nicest clothes, the latest gadget, the most. The coolest phone. Sometimes it's just the cover of the phone. I want to have the coolest cover. You know, case for my phone. These are all things where people just want to be better than other people, and better is like really up there in the the most overused word out there, other than love. The most overused word has got to be better. What does better mean? Come to think of it when I think about the younger generation, it's got to be the word weird and like, like this, like that. Everything's alike, like, like, like it has, should be like, should be like, like, I don't really know, but you know, like he really meant to say like blue when he really meant light blue. They throw likes in there all the time. And that's from lack of reading. You know, we lack of vocabulary is lack of reading, lack of reading. You don't, Pick up on new words because you're not reading new words. you got to wait for someone to give you a new word. What are the chances of someone giving you a new word and you're remembering that new word to the point where you can use it again in conversation? Usually it has to come from reading. You see it. You see how it's spelled. You see how it's used in a sentence. You embrace it. And chances are it's synonymous with some mediocre word you use all the time. Therefore, you want to replace the word. That's how you pick up vocabulary. I pick it up in my blogs when I'm responding to people. Every once in a while someone throws out a new word and um, I look it up and sometimes I admit to that person who I'm arguing with hey man, thank you for the new word. I give them the compliment that didn't necessarily want to give them when the conversation started on the thread. Some people really have really cool things to say but some other people on those same threads are so hyperbolic and insulting and stuff like that, which I'm guilty of this as well. There's no chance to really, uh, you know, express our views to the point where uh, someone can someone you're opposed to opinion on a particular subject matter of the thread, and you find out that they're actually intelligent people who you can learn from. And I'm guilty of sometimes not giving people the chance if they're on the left. Sometimes they'll say the, such predictable things that are catchphrases from their their stupid television stations that they listen to, and they believe just about anything that station will say, and then they'll repeat it like a talking parrot, and they'll almost say the same catchphrases. Like when it came to impeachment, he uh, the Department of Office and Management and Budget, a nonpartisan group made up of analysts and policymakers believe Donald Trump committed a crime. Well, go ahead and say that all you want. But the Constitution clearly states that the sole authority of foreign policy of this country, which must include foreign aid of the taxpayer, is in the sole power of the executive. And that sole executive is the President of the United States. So if he's going to dole out foreign aid to a foreign country, he can put conditions on that foreign aid, and the conditions have to do with looking into corruption that might include, or not might, that certainly include American citizens of his country, and that person happens to be running for president, so be it. So be it. So be it. Because... If you can exclude yourself from having the president come after you for corruption, just run for president. Everybody will run for president. Any ripoff artist doing business at the expense of the American taxpayer, just run for office. Even if you're a nobody, just put your hat in the ring and run for something. And therefore, the president can't come after you because you're running against him. Come on, man. That's That, that statement is ludicrous. It also assumes that Trump really fears bumbling Hiccuping, gaffing, Joe Biden, are you kidding me? Can you imagine Trump insulting Joe Biden during a debate? Because when it comes to policies, I don't think Trump really will articulate policies in the campaign. He didn't do it in previously. He just is a phenomenon. He's an iconic phenomenon. He's just this this movement. He represents a movement, the average Joe movement. And he never really told you what he was going to do other than everything's going to be great, trust me. That's what Donald Trump did. He ran on everything's going to be great like you've never seen it before because I know more about these things than you do. Trust me, this is what I do. And he won that way. And for me, getting run over by him, working as as I did for Ted Cruz, I saw firsthand— Here locally, when Ted came to town for the debates in Miami, I saw how Trump just stood there and it's what I do. And he didn't give you any policy. He just said it's going to be the greatest economy in the world once I'm there. And sure enough, what happened? It's the greatest economy since he's been there. How do you explain that? The only time he ever expressed policy specifically of what he was going to do, is at the very end, when he gave you a list of the judges that were going to be, the judge candidates that were going to be selected or nominated by him if he's president. And it was prepared by the Federalist Society. And that floored everybody. It gave the thinkers, you know, the tort reform people, the the legal beavers of the world, the, the, the attorneys, the, the, the executives, the brain trust behind the Republicans, who he was going to ask money for in the re-election because he didn't even spend any of his money. He allowed the media to elect him. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant strategy. Well, those people now had to support him because they just go and ask the federal Society people and websites, and they saw the quality of the judges there and the quality of candidates who perhaps weren't judges, but were going to be nominated as judges. And uh, you just had to vote for him if you were conservative. It really is what it is. That guy is a freak show. Masterful political phenomenon, probably never to be seen again. I'll take that back. Since we're early in the new century, I forgot we're in the 21st century now. It's too early to say that because it's another quite a many years here. There's another 80 years left of this century, so, and I'm not going to be around for most of it, so let me just bite my tongue on that one. But in my lifetime, he is, without a doubt, the most incredible political phenomenon in the history of my life. I'll leave it at that. Trump is a freak of nature. And what I really admire about him is that he's a hit and miss kind of guy. Doesn't really know for sure how you're going to perceive what he says. And he's so audacious, he doesn't really care. And boy, is that a fresh breath of air. You got to love the fact that he's donating all his salary. You got to love the fact that he's taken on everyone all at once. He's beat the best we had in the Republican Party 17 people. Who gave us a poor example by running? Because look, uh, the Democrats did the same. So it's to prove that something's a bad idea, just look if the Democrats copy you. Then you know it's a bad idea. Well, there you go. They ran. But notice how they, they bail faster than we did. R17 hung in there pretty long. They, they punched it out through primaries, and these people have fallen out much faster. That shows you the, the the naivete and the uneducated nature of the base of the Democratic Party. It, uh, we're talking about massive amounts of talking parrots. I mean, <coughs> <coughs> huh? Huh? what'd you say? Ah. Pay your fair share, pay your fair share, pay your fair share. Oh, tax the rich, tax the rich. The tax cuts for the rich only. What about the tax cuts for the middle class? Those tax cuts only benefited the rich, the rich, the rich. Well, if you have a tax cut, who's going to get it? Those who are paying the largest portion of taxes. Obviously, they're going to reap the benefits. It's that simple. So, what can I tell you? Oh, my God. Ah, sure. I'll tell you if you're gonna call if you're calling tonight um and you're waiting you go ahead and call at one eight four four six four five nine seven seven three but I only have three minutes left in the show so if you were gonna call, you gotta call like right now that was me letting me know that my ringer is still working in case I didn't hear the call. But, uh, you know, four minutes to seven, next shows up is uh, Adam Levinson, I believe he's going to call today. We're going to talk about, in more in, uh, more specific terms, on the two positions the House managers took and the president's attorneys took for the impeachment. It's part two of Statues and Stories impeachment hearings and the theories behind uh, Federalist 65. What Alexander Hamilton said, what Madison said about the power of impeachment and why it was not supposed to be used, and thank God it hasn't been, although that might change now on, from now on, was not supposed to be partisan. Impeachments simply were supposed to be bipartisan. To assure ourselves that you couldn't um, remove a president just because you hated his guts, And that's what Adam Schiff did. He concocted a group of insiders from the Obama administration holdover in the White House, in the West Wing. Why Trump let them is another audacious moment in the Trump presidency. I believe that Trump was so understanding of his phenomenon that he basically allowed people in the West Wing to stay there, right? To backstab him, to expose themselves as at his expense. I posted on Facebook uh, on the 31st of January. I kind of summed it up like this. Only Trump welcomes drama rooted in the West Wing. And lets. Them expose themselves at his expense. A commendable love for the USA. And that's really what it is. That is, sums up Trump. Only he welcomes the drama that was coming out of the West Wing from Obama officials. The perfect one was the whistleblower, Eric Syrarella. Sila Rella, Italian name, who was replaced by Alexander Vidman at the NSA, and his brother uh, Yugolev, Angolev, twin brother of Alexander, who was an attorney on the ethics panel at the NSA. And if you remember Eric Sira complaint, Eric's complaint was so meticulously done, meticulously done that I predict that Alexander Vidman brother, filled it out. I bet you he filled out the complaint because everybody was really intimidated when that complaint came out. It was so well done, which I'm not one to judge whether it was well done or not because I haven't read it, but it was so thoughtful that the Inspector General had to give it to the House, and they ran with it. And now we know why, because Adam Schiff already had a guy on staff who was in communication with Eric and the Vidmans. And Vidman himself, Alexander Vidman, testified that the first person he called after hearing the Zelensky conversation was his brother. Before they went to Eichmann, Er Ehrlichman, I think the attorney at the NSA, before they went to their boss, they spoke together as twins. And just it just so happens that they were born in the Ukraine. That's like a bunch of people here in Miami having some bizarre uh, animus for the United States treatment of Cuba. And that's the end of the story. So stay free, my friends. As you can hear the the ringer, it's time to go to Statues and Stories. We'll be back in a moment with statuesandstories.com with Adam Levinson.